Stanford University. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Patty Gumport. I'm the Vice Provost for Graduate Education. Very happy that you're here for this conversation on leadership with Tara Vandeveer. As you may know, uh, VPGE has developed a broad array of leadership and professional development initiatives, including this speaker series. And in this series, we invite very accomplished leaders from industry, government, and academia to talk about the challenges and rewards of leading in these different contexts. So we're just very excited that you're here today to welcome our final speaker of the academic year, Tara Vandeveer. And she'll be introduced by John Boothroyd, who is the Associate Vice Provost of Graduate Education and Professor of Micro, Microbiology and Immunology. So it's all yours, John. Thank you. Thanks, Patty, and welcome, everybody. Um, as Patty said, the goals of this program were to give us all insight into leadership from people who come from different avenues. And, and the way that we decided on the program was to poll students for what people they'd like to hear from. And one of the uh, categories that they identified was people who are leaders in sports. And as soon as we saw that, we said, wow, what a great idea. And the, the potential for interdisciplinary sort of learning from one another, the further afield you go, the greater the potential. So we were very excited about that. And it took us, I'd say, and by us, I mean, Anika Green and Sherry Shepard, who's teaching right now, so she couldn't be here, and Patty and Chris Goldie and the whole VPG office, about 10 seconds to say, who do we want to have as our person representing sports and leadership in sports? And it was Tara Vandeveer. And the, the reasons I could, we could spend an hour going through her bio and their, her accomplishments, which isn't the goal today. Um, but there were four things that, that came to mind uh, as, as good examples of her, her leadership. First of all, uh, she came here in about 1985, I think, so 25 years ago, and uh, inherited, I guess would be the word, a team that was, frankly, not doing very well. It had a pretty losing record. And in five years, took that team to the NCAA championship and won the championship, which is a phenomenal accomplishment for anyone. What impressed me over the years, and I've been following the team for a number of years, partly because I have a daughter who, who once said, to, why don't girls play sports? Because all she saw on TV were men. I said, you need to go see uh, some really great women playing sports. But also, um, what really impressed me was the ability to sustain that record. So a lot of people would say, my goal is to win the championship, and then, whew. and Tara has not done that at all. She has sustained that over the last two decades and consistently taken the team to amazing accomplishments. And unless you were living in a cave this past spring, you will know that they again went to the NCAA uh, championship and came awfully, awfully close. But I mean, it's, it's an, a phenomenal accomplishment. The third thing uh, you may know is that she decided to take a break from uh, this intense activity in 1995-96 uh, and went and coached the US Olympic women's team and took them th in a 30-game uh, route almost and won the gold medal in the 1996 Olympics. But the fourth thing that probably is uh, most inspiring to me and to many people is the way she's helped usher women's sports from a time when I was growing up uh, that it was essentially invisible. Uh, and it was a backwater at best and, and invisible uh, at worst. And has helped bring it into the main, uh, mainstream of media, mainstream of recognition. And, and it's not just we need more things to watch on TV. We obviously don't. But the, 
the accomplishment that that represents, and I think in terms of civil rights in general, women's rights, and all the rest of it, is really uh, very profound. So that's the thing that we just said, this is a person we would love to have uh, do this. So Tara, it's, it's an honor to be at the same institution as you. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege, and it's what makes this place such a, an amazing uh, place to work. So the format is that I'm going to pretend I'm Terry Gross for a little while, and I'll, you know, this is fresh air. And, um, and then... Watch out, I've spoken with Terry, so... Okay, well, then you're going to be really disappointed. But, um, and then we'll open it up for general questions, just to have a conversation, which will be, uh, I think, really enjoyable. So um, let's launch into it. And thanks again, Tara, for doing this. So um, I thought I'd start off with some sort of a, a hard question, but it's a general one, which is, think, if you can think of and tell us about something that you've had to do in your career as a coach that was just incredibly hard, and talk a little bit about how you uh, reached the decision you reached, and, and then how you communicated that, because I'm guessing that that hard decision involved people, and how you communicate a hard decision. Well, first of all, um, thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to meet you and see some people I recognize, and um, Patty and John, this is um, an, an honor to be here, and I also recognize that at this time in the, the quarter, uh, your time is very valuable, and if people leave, I, I won't be upset. I know that you have studying and all kinds of things that you're doing. Um, but I, I did uh, go to graduate school at Ohio State and then um, kind of wove my path out here. Um, so I, I have been here for 25 years. I started when I was 16. Uh, so <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's just, it's really a great place. And hopefully you're all having a great experience um, studying at Stanford. And one of the things I would just say in answer to the question, and, um, you know, probably the hardest thing for me to do, there were, a couple things that were, were, were really hard along the way, but one of them was I was a head coach at Ohio State uh, for five years, and we had a great team. And so the decision to come to Stanford, I was offered the job at Stanford, and I actually turned it down. And I, um, the athletic director at the time said, why, you know, why are you saying no to Stanford? And I said, well, I don't know enough about it, and I have a lot to lose. So, uh, the team I was coaching at Ohio State was a, a really talented team. And uh, he said, well, come back and look. And I really felt that Stanford offers the ultimate challenge because one of the hard things about recruiting and coaching at Stanford is uh, getting the students in. You know, it's very hard for, to get the combination of basketball and academics. Um, my dad was actually um, a graduate of uh, Dartmouth. And when I took the job at Stanford, I kind of I fibbed a little bit. I said, well, Dad, you know, I'm thinking about taking the job at Stanford. I'd already taken it. And he said, don't take it. There's no way you can win. You will be, uh, you know, you'll be unemployed in three months, and you'll come home and live with us, you know? <laughs> and I was just thinking, um, uh, no, my parents lived in Buffalo, New York. I said, no, that ain't happening. So, um, you know, so part of coming to, so one of the tough decisions for me was leaving a great team and taking over a challenge. And I saw it as the ultimate challenge. And really, uh, John was nice. The team uh, was horrible. I mean, the, the people were great, but we played um, teams. We, we played USC. We played in the Pac-10, and we got beat by, I was ha happy when we only lost by 20. We have twice as many people in this room today as we did at any of our games when I was first at Stanford. And it was, uh, you know, at Ohio State, I'd left the team where we'd played at Iowa. We'd had 22,000 people. We'd had 10,000 people. It was up and coming. It was, you know, exciting. 
Um, Title IX has, was just taking hold and uh, things were looking good. And I, and I was in the grocery store, the Safeway, and I'm thinking, I almost had a nervous breakdown in the grocery store. What the heck am I doing at Stanford? But um, as it turned out, um, you know, challenges, I think taking challenges and taking risks, maybe especially when you're young, are, are, they're part of the game and they're fun. And you just seem a little bit invincible. And, you know, I, I was, I kind of caught myself one time when I took the job. They said, well, what are your goals at Stanford? And I said, to win a national championship. And then later I was like, did, did I really say that? I'm like, well, now I got to back it up. And um, in fact, you know, we did, and we came very close this year. And I think that uh, we have a great shot at winning next year. Um, so hopefully, you know, we can we can get that done. How many um, how many people will be around on campus next year? Anyone studying next year? Well, I told John that part of the deal was that I would um, get tickets for everyone. So anyone that would like to come to our game, and uh, I'm not sure I can deliver on the Connecticut game, but there are some other really good ones that we're playing. We just scheduled Xavier; they'll be a top five team. They're really good. We, we beat them with um, about one-tenth of a second to spare. If anyone saw that game, we scored at, at those, like it was a leadoff for Sports Center. Um, but the, probably the toughest decision I, I've had to make um, was leaving Stanford for a year. I had to resign uh, to take the Olympic team. And we actually traveled all over the world and played, um, we played uh, a schedule of 60 games to get ready for the Olympics. And I had to leave this team and all that I'd worked on and built. And I was introduced. Um, there was actually in a room over in, um, in the athletic department. And there were you know, TV cameras all across the back, um, you know, reporters and such. And the head of USA Basketball, which was hiring me, uh, introduced me and said the introduction was like this. This is not about bronze. This is not about silver. This is about gold. Tara Vanderveer. And I was like. Whoa. So, um, you know, that was taking over that team, uh, and I had a year to get ready. And that actually, I remember it was on a March 13th. I'm not superstitious or anything, but, uh, you know, March 13th, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it was April 13th, and I had uh, a little over a year uh, and a half to get ready for the gold medal game, which was August 4th, 1996, in Atlanta. Um, some of you were very young then, but um, it was an incredible opportunity. But at the time, it was really um, like, we, we better win. And you know, there's a lot of things you don't have control over when you're a coach. You know, are, could pe are people going to be healthy? Are they going, uh, you know, are they going to buy into this training for a year, which they'd never done? And so I had, to, uh, I had to have a lot of confidence. And I had to have, uh, I just think, a lot of perseverance to get through that year and to uh, make it happen. So that was, that was kind of the toughest thing. And there'll be times that probably during um, you know, our, our Q&A today, I'll reference the Olympic year. And I actually worked with a woman who wrote a book on it called Shooting from the Outside. And I didn't do the title, but um, it kind of chronicled the year and, and how exciting it was and how much I learned. And once I felt like I made that t tough decision, and once I got into it, there was one day on, on August 4th, 1995, when I went out running and I came back and I was showering and I just thought, oh my gosh, a year from today is the gold medal game. And I honestly just started shaking like in the shower and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, what if we're not in that game? What if we don't win that game? What if, you know, all these things. And I just got out and I sat down and I could just feel this, you know, incredible amount of stress and pressure. And then I, I just, I kind of just, I, I, I sat right there. I mean, I didn't have anything on. 
I was still soapy, and I just, I sat on the toilet, and I just thought to myself, you know, you know what you're doing. You're going to have great players. This is really exciting, you've got, but you've got to change your attitude. You know, in order to win this, you've got to just go back in the shower, wipe, you know, get everything off, including any thoughts of negativity. And that's what I did, and it was the most amazing thing that then kind of just really being positive about the whole year, the excitement, and looking forward to that gold medal game. And uh, it, it was really a tremendous game. We played uh, Brazil, which is a team we had lost to in the uh, World Championships. And we, we had this game that was so amazing, uh, and just people played so well. But, but I know that through the whole year, kind of looking forward to it, being positive, thinking positive thoughts, um, was a part of the reason that that happened. And afterwards, I got the, the nicest letters. It was, um, for those of you that follow the basketball, uh, I got one that had these little fuzzy dogs, and it was like John Wooden. I was like, John Wooden? Like he's like the most amazing coach ever in the history of men's basketball. And he wrote me this really nice letter about the uh, gold medal. Now, there were other ones that I got. One was from like Coach Knight, Bobby Knight, and all people all over the world. Uh, and I kind of go back to that tough decision to, you know, do I take a year from Stanford? If I don't, I'm never going to have this opportunity again. And then doing it and really um, enjoying every single day of preparing the team, uh, working with the team, uh, traveling, uh, and learn an uh, incredible amount of lessons. And now, in any game that we play, I'm like, there's not the pressure on me that was ever on me for that gold medal game. So I'm even more relaxed. And you know, I'm like, oh, we missed a basket, no big deal. You know, all right. Somebody gets a foul, all right, let's you know, keep it going. So it really helped me grow, I think, as, as a coach. Well, I'll do shorter answers, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's wonderful and really, really inspiring. I, I think I need to take up coaching because if it would decrease my stress, that would be great. <laughs> so different leaders have different styles, and, and that's something that has to be a very personal decision. How would you describe your leadership style? Uh, well, I think that you know, we're, we, are all, we are all products of our genetics and, part of our, and products of our environment. And... You know, I'm, I'm the oldest of five children. Both of my parents uh, were teachers. Uh, my mom is still alive. Uh, my dad has passed away. But um, they really, I, I think I really approached things as a teacher. So I think, you know, basketball is, is just my medium. Whatever you're in, if I was in something else, in fact, I, I thought I was going to go to law school. You know, I majored in sociology. I went to Indiana University. Anyone from Indiana here? No. It's a great basketball state. Yep, great basketball state. Uh, I went to Indiana University and I majored in sociology and I planned to um, I planned to go to law school, but I wanted to take a year off. I didn't want to go to graduate school right away or law school right away. So I traveled. I I crew. I like to sail. Um, I was crewing on a boat in uh, it was in South Carolina and then I stayed in in the South for a while, and then conveniently around Christmas um, I ran out of money. So I went home, and my parents were really excited. I was home for the holidays. And then about the middle of January, my dad was like, uh, well, what are you doing home? I'm like, well, hanging out. You know? He goes, well, no, that's not working. You've you got to get a job. And I'm like, job? I, you know, I, I wasn't ready for that. And he just said, well, then you have to go help coach your sister's team. And I'm like, uh, my sister had just lost 99 to 11 the night before. 
This is true. So I said, all right, um, uh, you know, it was either that or the street. And again, Buffalo was cold in January. So I said, all right, I'll, 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 I'll do this. And I, I just really uh, became very passionate about this. Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, coaching um, my sister's team. But I realized I wanted to coach at a higher level, uh, coach at um, a college level. And so I, I kind of got that pathway going. But, um, you know, it's just... Um, I don't know, just the preparation, all the different things that go, go into um, you know, getting you ready for your field and not being afraid. I think that was part of it. I just I kept saying, I'm not coming home. Um, well, one of the, did well. the things you sometimes hear from people is the one, leaders who are really good at delegating mm -hmm. and will, will just sit back and, and grit their teeth and hope that the people who report to them can do a good job of it, and others who mm -hmm. tend to, to lead by being right in there all the time. Where would you put yourself well, in that? The, kind of the leadership stuff, again, I think it relates to being a teacher, kind of getting it from my parents. Um, but I, I had watched Indiana men's basketball for, like, Coach Knight was a very famous basketball coach, and I'd watched it. And so in some ways, I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew what I didn't want to be. And I worked for different people, and I... Um, I'm kind of a copier, you know, like I don't always know, I don't, I'll watch and I'll learn from people how to do things and how not to do things. And again, I, I get a lot from my parents, so I would say the leadership style comes from my parents of, uh, my, my parents are, they're very, I think, direct. Uh, they're very um, patient people and, and encouraging and positive people. And so I, I think my, my leadership style um, I learned it, and you know, you are who you are, but you, I learned from different people that I'm around, and I watch what works, and I watch what doesn't work. Um, so a lot of times for me as a coach, I would go watch different practices, uh, different uh, men's coaches, women's coaches, um, different sports, and that's something at Stanford, I watch a lot of you know, different sports and talk to a lot of coaches. Uh, Bill Walsh was one of the top coaches, a football coach here that I spent time with, and um, any number of different people. So I think that, I mean, how would you, I don't know how exactly to describe the style. Um, I have a vision for how I want our team to play. And once, I think that, you know, with our, with our team, I just, you know, I've watched a lot of practices. I feel knowledgeable about uh, my medium of basketball. And, you know, I, I kind of keep in mind and, and what, what I, I guess what I, I wanted to get to with, with coaching, one of the first things that I learned, you know, with coaching my sister, you know, I would come home and my parents, my mother would say, well, my sister's name was Marie, and she was not into basketball in the way that I'm into basketball. She played it casually. And my mother would say, well, how come Marie didn't play more? And I'd be like, well, Mom, Marie can't dribble. She can't shoot. Uh, she can't stop anyone from scoring her, you know, she's, but my mom would be, but she's so nice. And I'm like, yeah, mom, that's your daughter. And this is my sister. I love her. But, you know, I've got to play the people that can produce, you know, but I also learned from my parents and that experience that everyone on that team is someone's sister, is someone's daughter. And I think that, you know, a lot of times you get in situations as whether it's a leader or a coach and you're so focused on winning and uh, you know, and that you and people are mistreated, and I, I really feel that sometimes when I get upset with a player or an assistant coach, I go back to that first experience of 
you know, this is someone else's sister or this is someone else's daughter. And just to say, wait, all right, time out. I'm going to back up. Because uh, trust me, kids on the team do some real knucklehead things. And you're like, uh oh, this isn't going to work. You know, you have to deal with things. So, but to remember that. Uh, and so I think my leadership style is um, maybe um, trying to be compassionate or understanding, but at the same time being direct in that, you know, we, we want to beat Tennessee. We want to beat Connecticut. Uh, we want to win the Pac-10. We want to win a national championship. So, we, you know, we've got to be really on the same page all the time. So most of the, not most, of, probably all of the people here are going to be in leadership positions that equate to being a coach. Mm -hmm. And probably few of them will be doing that in sports. They'll be doing it in other venues, be it academia or law mm -hmm. or business. What do you do as a leader of a sports team that you think people in other arenas don't know and they, they don't even think about doing it that works so well and you'd say, you should try this? For me, for example, right. as leader of a, of a lab group, a, mm -hmm. a research team of 15 people. Should I be making them do wind sprints up and down the lab? or Some might need it. <laughs> um, well, as I, you know, and John and I talked a little bit, basketball is just my medium, you know. So whatever, you know, your medium is, uh, it is there are, I think there are a lot of things that do carry over. Um, and what I find is that when I speak at uh, business or academic situations, um, there are a lot of very dysfunctional, quote, families, business families, sports families, lab families. I mean, whether it's 50, anytime you have 15, 20, 200, all, you know, these different people uh, that you are either managing or in some way uh, coaching, um, you're, there's going to be things that come up. And I, I think that, um, you know, some really basic things apply, and it, it sounds very simplistic, but... Um, but I just, I take a lot of things that my parents taught me uh, in that, you know, again, I, I grew up a, a little bit, um, leave it to Beaver for those of you that are old enough to, that, to know that show, but, you know, um, treating people how you want to be treated, you know, because, again, you know, you might be the head coach or I'm the head coach or you're in charge of the lab, um, and making sure that the people on your team treat others uh, and are respectful and treat each others well. And, I find that that's you know that's a a big a big problem on teams is that um, you know a lot of times it's not the team you're playing, it's in your own room that people are divisive that things come apart on the inside uh, as opposed to you know playing the opposite team. We we play teams where our our players will come over and they'll say it's happening and I'll, I'll say yep. How do you know? They're yelling at each other. They're at each other. You know, it's not us beating them as much as they don't want to play hard for each other. So I think keeping people on the same page, um, you know, work, uh, getting uh, people working together and treating each other well. Um, again, this is just a little thing, but with our team and my mom would say, you know, if you don't have something good to say about someone, then don't say anything. A lot of what people, you know, the behind the back, the clickiness and all that, it's a real thing, and it's more so for adults even than sometimes than, than young kids. Um, but I, I think that, um, that the, the cohesiveness of a team far outweighs the talent of a team. Uh, if you, you might have a very talented, you know, we play teams constantly. We played in the Final Four this year, and we were playing Oklahoma, and they had a really quick point guard. 
who wanted to come to Stanford, who was a great kid. You know, she's really super athletic, could go by everybody. They had another guard who's, you know, super athletic, great shooter. And they, would, they said to me, now who's going to guard Danielle Robinson? Um, I said, you know, Jeanette. And they're like, oh, my gosh, can you, you think she can guard her? I'm like, well, this is the best we've got. And then who's going to guard, you know, Stevenson? I'm like, Roz. Uh, and, I mean, sure enough, I mean, we, we were, they did a great job. But it's not that they did it individually. They do it collectively. And, and that's something that... Um, you know, a lot of people think, well, someone, you know, it's all about talent, and I, I would disagree. Uh, we do not win on pure talent. We win on ma maximizing, I call it, uh, making, uh, you know, maximizing your strengths and minimizing your weaknesses. You know, when you're working with people, um, you know, you might be our best point guard. Well, then I don't have you, I don't have your number one job being being a rebounder. But you might be our best rebounder, so you rebound, you know, you bring it up the court. Do what you're good at. You know, and then try to expand your, uh, your skill set, but uh, making people look good and not, not putting them in embarrassing situations. On every team, there's always a range of talent and a range of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. How do you inspire and, and motivate the people who are, it's probably not the word, I'm sure it's not the word you would use, but it's colloquially used, the bench warmers, the people who mm -hmm. aren't the first string. How do you keep them coming right. and getting excited when they're just going to be sitting there almost the whole game? You know, I, I mean, I think that's, that's a really a good question, and, and people are going to contribute different ways. I, I really try to, um, I, I try to point out the contributions of everyone on our team. And one thing that did happen, we had a national championship team. We won a national championship in 1990 and 1992. And on our 1990 team, there was a young lady who, forget bench warmer, she was like hugging the water cooler. I mean, she was so far down the bench. You know, she was like, never got in the game. And I asked her, I said, now, her name was Angela. I said, Angela, uh, she walked on our team. Um, I said, Angela, when, you know, if there's like 15 seconds left or 30 seconds left, do you still want to go in the game? You know, a lot of kids would be like, I got my shoes off, forget it. I'm not going in, you know, forget it. And she said, put me in any time. So uh, this particular year in 1990, uh, I also asked everyone on our team on a little index card, I said, tell me what your role is on this team. And this team went on to win a national championship. It was the first time we'd ever done it at Stanford. And she wrote as her role, spread sunshine. So here is our by far last person who got in the very least. And her, her attitude was that you know, she felt valued and she was going to spread sunshine with the, other, with the other players. So fast forward two years. She was a freshman that year. In her junior year, she, we were in a situation where we were playing in the national semifinal game. We were playing a team called you know, Virginia, which had a great player. Uh, her name was Dawn Staley. Dawn had gone on to play in three Olympics. She was a three-time All-American. She carried the US flag in Greece when we uh, were at the Olympics. She's just a phenomenal player. Well, it was a one-point game. We were winning by one, and there was 0.7 seconds left on the clock. And she was going to get the ball. And I put in Angela, who had not been in that game at all. And for 7 tenths of a second, she guarded this Don Staley, because that was what she was good at, was playing defense. And we went on to win a national championship. Now, someone could say, well, you know, I only played seven-tenths of a second, but that was the seven-tenths of a second to determine the outcome of the game. Um, you know, so I, I feel like um, 
I really, I honestly do value the um, contributions of everyone on the team. And it's not always, contributions are not always in a stat sheet. You know, you don't always, just because someone scored a lot of points. Um, we have had players that are tremendous talents who are absolutely um, not leaders and not cohesive. They did not help the cohesion of our team. And in fact, we were better when they didn't play. So, you know, I, I think the um, getting everyone on the same page and this particular team this past year, if anyone uh, saw it, um, maybe just tell me if you watched our team play at all this year. So you maybe watched a little bit. All right. So this particular team, there were seven players who played basically all the minutes. And there were seven players who didn't play at all. And that kind of team could be, you know, you could have the seven players. But it was interesting when I asked them, when we do um, rooming assignments, I always ass I assign the roommates through the year. And I mix everyone around. And then when it comes to the tournament for the Pac-10 tournament and the NCAA tournament, I let them pick a roommate, one for the Pac-10, one for the first round of the NCAA, one for the second round of the NCAA. And I let them you know, rank if you want uh, you know, your first three or first five. And I give it usually to the upperclassmen. The seniors will get their first choice. And it was interesting that it wasn't these seven wanting each other. It was every, you know, everyone kind of. There wasn't like this group and that group. And I think that that really pointed to the strong leadership on our team with our seniors, that everyone wanted our seniors to go out on a high note. Everyone was committed to, um, you know, the star players uh, were good people. And they brought everyone into the circle, uh, which we will always stand in a circle before every practice, you know, um, before games. We uh, join hands in a circle, and that everyone is very important as part of that circle. And Kind of in a, in a business sense, I think that um, if I were the CEO or, you know, I'm the CEO of our basketball program, but um, I always, you know, make sure that, I always try to make sure that even going into our building, you know, is recognizing uh, the woman that cleans our building, you know, speaking with her every day and doing, I mean, it's, you know, really making sure that everyone, uh, and, and my assistant coaches are great at this, um, we get gear, you know, little like t-shirts, stuff and everything, and spreading that gear around to everyone so that, that people are supportive of your program and, and, your, and the job you do. In every team, there's always going to be conflict. Uh, how do you deal with conflict between team members? Um, let's see. We haven't had a lot of it. Uh, we haven't had a lot of, uh, I think that, um, I think that part of it is framing for your team, framing for the people that you're working with, what the goal is. And if, if we in this room are on the same team and we want to accomplish, um, you know, we have, we have to agree on, on similar goals. And we have to look at our behavior. Is that behavior that is going to help us accomplish our goal? Our goal was to win a national championship. And so if you're upset with someone else on your team, um, you have to, you know, work that out. And, uh, you know, really th um, this year, I, I, I can't think of like a whole, I can't think of an incident where it was a lot of conflict. And, and the same thing with the Olympic team when I'm traveling, you know, we're traveling all over the world. I never had to pull someone in and say, hey, we need to talk about this. Everyone knew it was about winning a gold medal. And, you know, I think that, 
I mean, I think that that's a communication, the importance of the communication from whether it's your head coach or, you know, leaders or uh, team leaders. And it's uh, everyone really saying, all right, I'm willing to sacrifice for this because we want this so badly. Um, and then, th then there's always the 6 o'clock in the morning practices that they help too. <laughs> we didn't have to have any this year. They're so tired, there's no conflict, right? Right. Uh, what, let's see, I'm trying to think of... There are, you know, there, there are some times where you do have players on your team who um, I would just say, you know, the conflict is maybe they're not mature enough. They don't, they don't understand kind of the big picture. They don't get it. Uh, and it, to me, is that uh, we sacrifice for each other, that we're unselfish, and that we, um, that we work really hard for each other. And a lot, of it, a lot of it is about the caring that you have for the person next to you. Uh, that you don't want to let them down, um, and to develop this um, culture of whether it's a business, whether it's a lab, this culture of I'm not, I'm not going to let my teammate down. Um, I will do what it takes and I will work extra so that we, uh, we experience kind of the highs together because um, it's, it, it, is, uh, it is very, very competitive. I'm sure that every field that each of you are in is extremely competitive. Um, and to figure out, well, you know, how do I get to the next level? Uh, you know, and we're trying to do that as a team. Title IX clearly changed the landscape. Could you very briefly, probably most people are aware of it, but I'm guessing not everybody is, could you just very briefly summarize what Title IX was and then talk about what needed to happen in addition to Title IX to get women's sports to where they are today? Uh, well, I, I grew up, again, I, um, I grew up in the, the 60s, the 70s, when girls' sports did not exist. Now, we have a basketball camp where, so I kind of run a business in, in addition to, um, you know, coaching. During the summer, we've had 1,800, like, young girls, 8 to 18, come to basketball camp. And we have a room like this and over in the uh, athletic department. There were 58-year-olds sitting in the room, and I told them, I never played basketball when I was your age. They did not have teams. There was no such thing as, you know, bitty ball. There's no such thing as junior high basketball. Only the boys played. And I mean, I went on about how there were no scholarships for girls, no teams to play on. My college team, when I went, I mean, I paid, paid my own way. I waitressed to pay for uh, going to school. And they were, eight-year-olds were just in amazement. And one little eight-year-old raises her hand and says, why was it like that? And I was like, how do I explain this? So, you know, just like any of your teachers, what do they say? They say, well, can anyone else answer that question? And so another little eight-year-old raises her hand real quick, and she goes, sexism, like that. And I was like, whoa, eight years old. And, you know, it was honestly, it was very painful for me as a young girl. I love to play, and I would take... Uh, I'd save my allowance, I went out and got a good basketball, and I would go and, you know, the time I was 10 years old, 11, 12, play with the boys. And let's say they had an odd number, they're, I'm like, Tara, you're out. And I'm like, okay, that's my ball, if you want to play with that nice ball, I'm playing. You know, it's like, this little guy is out, because I'm better than him, you know. So, as I got older, though, you know, it became... Really, I mean, there was seventh grade boys team, eighth grade boys team, freshman boys team. So I thought, how am I going to get to the games? My parents, I was at a university school. My parents lived 20 miles away. So I 
tried out to be the um, mascot. So I was a bear. Imagine that at Stanford, a bear. You know, so and I would take the head off and watch the game, and I got fired in the middle of the season because I wasn't leading the cheers. I was watching the game. So, but it was really it was really painful as a, a young person not to have the opportunity to play. I so I went out and I bought a 10-speed bike, and I my parents lived in Niagara Falls, right outside of Buffalo. I was the only person in the whole city that had a 10-speed bike. People would yell out the window at me, hey, you know, get a horse. I'm like, get a life. You know, I mean, it was crazy, but that was my outlet, riding my bicycle. And I just said, I'm too old for basketball. You know, I was 15. I'm not going to play again. But um, it, was, it was really painful. And then along comes Title IX in 1972 that basically is a law that was actually um, Richard Nixon signed. Um, that basically said that you know universities and any um, anyone that took federal money had to include women in their sports programs. That's kind of the gist of it. There's it's more to it, but and the powers to be fought it um, because uh, on college campuses you as a student would pay um, at most schools you would pay a, a university fee, a couple hundred dollars. It all went to the boys. And I'm like, this isn't right. So it's, it's a, you could have a whole program on just Title IX, but Title IX is something that, you know, if, if in your life, can you ever look and say, one thing totally changed the path of my life? Well, that did for me. Because now all of a sudden, there are jobs for women coaching basketball. My college coach, I went to Indiana, was a graduate student. She was a wonderful woman. Uh, she was 25 years old. She had kinesiology, exercise physiology, and then she coached us on the side. You know, I have a full-time position with a video coordinator, three full-time assistants, uh, director of basketball. I mean, there's seven or eight people in my office alone, which is always the way it's been uh, for men. Um, so th this one thing has shaped uh, basketball in the United States and women's sports as much as anything. Was there more? Do you think that the women's movement, for example, which of course they're, they're mm. tied together because Title IX was a product of that, was a product of the civil rights movement as well as the women's movement? But I, I definitely think they were. They did go a little hand in hand, and you know, I I, I think that um, some of the um, obviously parents were really important, but I think that one of um, I think the dads of daughters really. Uh, are, were a lot of times the heroes of the story in that they would, you know, they'd have a son. And when I, I, I call it the hot dogs and steak. When I would sit down at the dinner table, my mom and dad, I have one brother, and my mom and dad would serve hot dogs to everybody, all right, or steak to everybody, not hot dogs to the girls and steak for the boys. You know, that wasn't how it worked. But I look at it where... And a lot of times in sports, it was even worse than that. I mean, but now, I mean, and we, still, we still have a long way to go in Title IX 1972. Some, what's the math on that? You know, how many years ago was that? You know, yeah, it was a, it was a ways back. And we still have a long way to go because when people have something, they are slow to give it up. You know, if you're used to having, as a football coach, if you're used to having unlimited scholarships, all of a sudden having 120, now it's down to 85. I mean, that was like, oh, no, we can't, we can't survive on that. 
You know, we get used to a certain thing and then like, oh, change is really hard. But um, one of the things I think with Stanford is that, um, you know, they recognized that early on they, they said we're going to work hard to have, um, you know, women's sports and support women's sports. And they, they are at Stanford. How many of you ever participated in college athletics at a university? All right, so a lot of people. At some level. How about how many people play sports? Just that's part of your life. You do something. All right. I know a hockey player right here. Um, but you know, you you recognize how important sports are, and you um, and you gain certain things from that activity. Whether it's playing pickup uh, at the gym, or whether it's rock climbing, or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's a real important part of our our, our lives, and it keeps us in balance. So I'm going to ask one last question and then turn it over to the floor. Um, as you think back about this change, this enormous sea change that happened in women's sports, and think about, and as you say, we're not fully there yet, but compared to where we were, it's, it's uh, miles and miles ahead. Some of the other problems that we're wrestling with today that are at the same place where women's sports was 40 years ago, for example, climate change. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to people who are trying to effect the same kind of change in the area of climate issues in the world or human rights? What lessons do you take from your experience that you would share with them and the advice you'd give to them as they fight that fight? Um, I, you know, the, the battles are many out there. We know this. I mean, whether it's climate change, whether it's women's rights, whether it's children's rights. I mean, all there are an incredible number of, of whether it's battles or challenges. Um, I think that um, I think the most important thing is what, whatever you are in is be passionate about it. And don't be afraid to commit wholly to uh, what you believe in. And, you know, just the, uh, the thing I think that... Um, you know what I see, and and I also I think that whatever you do, also, um, you put your name on it. And I tell our team this. You know, every day of practice, or every paper you're working on, or you know the activities you're doing, you are signing your name to that. And any great art, you know, it's like, well, who did it? And so, and you have the opportunity, whatever you're in, to bring passion, enthusiasm. Um, and excellence to it. And I think that that's one of the really great pulls to Stanford is that you are surrounded by other people who are really excited and really passionate about what they're doing. Basketball just happens to be my medium, you know, and um, science happens to be John's medium. And, and all of you are, you know, in the beginning of wonderful careers. Um, and I would just say, you know, you, you've got to be totally into it. When I first came to Stanford, um, I met a, a gentleman. He actually helped me re recruit players. He was, uh, he was on the um, staff, the medical staff. Psychiatry was his specialty, and I, I really felt like I needed it. Why did I take this job here sometimes? But he really helped recruit players, and at one point, he would take pictures at our games. Um, his name was Dr. Serenello. I don't know if anyone knows that name, but he would come to all of our games, and he came into my office to show me pictures, and I said, you know, Dr. Serenello, uh, I just have one question for you. Is it bad for me as a coach to be so 
just obsessed with it. I'm crazy about basketball. I watch it. I study it. I, you know, I, I think about it a lot, and I work at it. And some people, they, they almost like tease me. They'd say, you know, video Vanderveer, because I studied it so much, or I was so into it. And they would almost use it against me. That it was, and so he said, let me shut your door. And we talked like for hours about the fact that when, you know, there's going to be times in your life where you can just commit yourself so completely to things and that it's, um, then it was okay. And I needed that permission to really put myself totally into something. Uh, now, I mean, I, I don't know that I could do that then, but like now I take piano lessons and I, uh, I, I think I'm a little more balanced, but then that was a, a big part of, for me, to launch my career to really uh, help me get to where I wanted to be. Um, but that passion, I think, in whatever you're in, I think is really key. And, the, and I also think one thing that Stanford, uh, I don't know, I was, um, I think confidence is a real important thing. And I think it's an especially important thing for women. You know, there's, it's just amazing to me uh, for, um, you know, the young women that come up through basketball, um, they're, they're not always as confident as they should be. And that's something that uh, if you are, in a situation where you can mentor women, whether you are male or female, um, but to bring out the best in the people that you're working with. Um, I think that for women, especially even maybe being at a place like Stanford, you are in the fast track, and you are competing with the best and the brightest, and then to be able to take that and carry it into whatever field you go in. So I think passion and confidence are really two really key uh, things that have, um, have helped me. And, and then there was also just a thought back in the back of my mind, I don't want to go home and live with my parents. So that helps, helps me pay my mortgage. Thanks so, so much. So we have some questions? Yeah, let's throw it to the And Tara, would you mind just repeating the question All just right, so we get on the mic? Sir. Why aren't there women coaching men's sports? Why aren't there women coaching men's sports? That's, that's, that's a great question. I think that, um, I think that part of it is the... The culture that young boys grow up with, and a lot of it is not respecting women. Um, they have a lot of uh, people have, you know, maybe come from even one, uh, one parent families where they love their mothers and they have a lot of female teachers. But the, the message from a lot of their coaches when they're young, male coaches, uh, is not respectful about women. And when, if you had a woman as a coach, you would somehow be being shortchanged. It's not that women can't do the job. Um, you know, there used to be this, uh, this little kind of quiz. So I'll, I'll throw it out to you, and you'll, you'll laugh at it. But um, there was a car accident, and um, father's son was hurt and went to the hospital. And the doctor said, I can't operate. That's my son. Who was the doctor? Mother. Well, no one could, like... People would go, you know, I mean, like, well, was it a doc? You know, it's like, but for a long time, you couldn't see doctors as women or, you know, your lawyers or, um, you know, we haven't had a, a female president of the United States. There are leaders in other our countries, but um, sports in a lot of ways is the absolute uh, last frontier. Um, there are, um, you know, things that, have happened in every other field throughout the world that have not happened in sports and in male sports. Um, so 
uh, I think women are, are capable, um, but it would, um, you know, it would be interesting. Like there was a woman that actually coached at Stanford, and she coached boys high school, and the attitude was, don't lose to that skirt. You know, that was how other coaches, male coaches, would kind of be. So I don't know if it's sometimes the, um, I mean, insecurity of certain men, um, but it's definitely out there. But there's, there's a lack of confidence in women in general, you know. And it's interesting also that a lot of men coach women. Over half of the Division I coaches of women's basketball are men. So women have, have no, if, if, if there's 100 jobs, 50 of them they can't get at all because they're men. And the other 50, half of them, 25, are, are going to men. And, and it's interesting, the dynamics, the, just how men relate to women. You know, um, it's, uh, it, it's interesting. A lot of, some of the men coaches of women could never coach men because of how they treat the women. They could never get away with that. Uh, treating men that way. So it, it's interesting for discussion. Yes, I saw your hand. So you hear in pro teams there's a lot of discord in teams where the star players get preferential treatment. Mm -hmm. How do you um, approach that with your own team? Do you treat your star players and your bench warmers the same or a little different depending on? Okay. Uh, the question is um, in professional athlete, athletics, there's discord between sometimes the stars and the um, not, not stars, subs, uh, how, how do I work with that in our own uh, team situation? Um, you know, I, I really, I, I try as hard as I can to make decisions um, based on what's best for our team. You know, so it's not always you individually. Um, but as an example, if we have a star player who's late for practice, they would receive the same punishment as a non-star player. But what if this star player, you know, they're extenuating circumstances? I would listen in the same way that I would listen to the non-star player's extenuating circumstances. So um, I try to rule or, or be, um, make decisions based on what's best for our team and by individual situations that happen. Um, and, you know, some of it too is that everyone has a chance to be a star. A lot of times, people don't work as hard. They really are not as committed, and they might not be as talented. So my challenge is you be the best player you can be. You know, and that will be, and, and that, that's great for our team. And we're trying to be the best team we can be to realize our potential individually and collectively, which um, you know, is hard to do. But I also think that it's how the players relate to each other, is if, you know, one person's a star and they don't recognize that you are working against them every day in practice and getting them better. Um, you know, that the inner, inner workings of the team, I think, can take care of those dynamics. Um, one thing that's very different professionally is the pay scale. At Stanford, as an example, um, a, a student athlete on our basketball team has a full scholarship, so they are they are basically clearing tax-free about fifty-two or $53,000. So that's a full scholarship to go to undergraduate at Stanford. Um, whereas on a pro team, you might have one key player, LeBron James, 
you know, what is he making? 25 million. And then there's someone else's at the at the rookie salary. So there are very, you know, big discrepancies. But um, I don't know that there's actually dissension on the team. I think the guys on those teams, they know that they know the deal. Um, you know, I, I think that um, some of them just want to be a star in their own right, and they're not, so then they go on a different team. I don't know that there's the, the issues with they're happy when the star wins because then everyone gets some of the bonus. Yes. Um, uh, let me work my way back, all right? Go ahead, in the front. In the front. Um, a pet peeve of mine, perhaps you could comment on, is that uh, when the Stanford women's team wins, it always gets second billing in the Stanford Daily. And I wonder whether that is also annoying to you occasionally, mm -hmm. whether it's worth doing something about it. Okay. All right, so this is a Stanford recording. When the Stanford women's team wins, it gets second billing. I don't, I probably should follow the paper more carefully than I do, but um, I haven't seen it always that way. Um, in the old days, I would say yes, it wouldn't even be in the paper. Um, but um, I think that what, when things are in fact, if, if that's how you see it, I would write to the paper. And I think that. You know, as the coach of the team, I feel like sometimes there are just so many battles I can fight. And it's not that that's not important, it is. Because it, again, that's perception, that's men here, women here. Um, and there is, we, we live in, in that world a lot. But you know, I would say this, look at our, our men's volleyball team just won a national championship. Did anybody see that, the match? It was phenomenal. I had to look on the back page for them, you know. So it's, um, it's not always male, female. It might be sometimes a sport. But um, I would encourage you to write to, whether it's the Stanford Daily. I mean, it happens all the time, like with the sports on TV. They'll show St. Mary's men. We'll have twice as many people at our game. Uh, so I won't say I don't notice it. And I won't say it doesn't affect me at some level. But it's worn me down, too, you know, because I'm in my 30-something year of a head coach. And I'm kind of like, all right, let me just, let me focus on things that, like, let me watch more video to get ready for Connecticut or that. Go ahead, what's, what's your question, yes? Yeah, so you have improved your team a lot. What do you think is the biggest difference you made throughout the process? Or in other words, what do you think is the biggest difference between an average team and an outstanding team? Excellent question. What is the biggest difference between an average team and an outstanding team? Players. Having great players. You know, this is a mistake that I think coaches make. And for you, if you are in business, it even, it even be worse for you. Like when you look at people, like um, we, have, we had a great player, Jane Appel for our team, was a great center. Candace Wiggins, phenomenal. Just because someone puts on that uniform, it does not make them that great a player. When you have an opportunity, you have to work, you know, it might not be as obvious, but like to my assistant coach, she can go out and watch and say, she'll say, well, this is a player we want. And I'll go, well, how come we don't want that one? You have to be able to see the difference in what people will bring to your team. And you have to surround yourself with great players at, at anything you do. It's the same thing with an orchestra. You've got to have great talent, great but you have to have someone who can listen and say, wow, that player 
plays really well. You know, and at a real high level, the differences are small. So you have to have someone who has this great knowledge, and, and that's what you want to be someday. If you want to have a great team in whatever, what is your field? Uh, I'm in business. Business. So if you're in business, you know, if all these people in the room give you the resume, you've got to be able to look at a resume and say, wow, this, it, this person is someone I want to, because that's, you'll probably start with that, and then you'll interview them. And you might, you know, and so you have to develop a way of saying, well, this person is really going to bring great skills to my business. You know, and that that's the difference. We, um, we looked at players early on, uh, and my assistant coach does a great job at this. She has a, a great ability to watch people play as young players and be able to project this is going to be a great player you know, down the road. But that's it. And then I think you, know, you have the talent. You have to have a certain amount of talent. And then it's as, as a coach how you develop the talent. Um, and how you, or how you use your time. We're allowed 20 hours a week. And we, use, we have to use our time very well. And we have people that will come and watch. Um, I'll, I'll open this up to you. If you would like to come watch our practice, you're welcome to come watch our practice next year. You know, you can come by practice. You can talk to John or you can email me. I'm at, I'm at Tara Hoop, T-A-R-A-H-O-O-P, at stanford.edu. And you're welcome to come watch a practice and see how it's organized. It moves. People are, I mean, not wasting any time and develop and just, like, how do you use your meetings? How do you use your meeting time? Um, you know, maximizing your time. Did I answer your question? All right, I'm working my way back there. I'm coming, coming to you next. What are some of your key techniques in uh, motivating and getting the best out of your players and staff? I'll go back to the oh, young woman before you. What's the best? What are my best motivation techniques? Players. Get people who are motivated. Like, I, you know, try to, I mean, try to motivate people. I don't know that, I don't know that I'm a, I'm not a great motivator, but this is my attitude. I'm going to outwork you. So I want players who are competitive and who, like, I got, I got mad if they're in the gym before me. You know, I got to get over there because I'm going to be there ready. And so I think that what I can do is I can model good motivation. And I am motivated. I like winning. I'll tell you that. It's, it beats the heck out of losing. Losing is painful. Winning is fun. Um, and so it's getting great players who understand, well, this is how we're going to be successful as a team. And that they're motivated to buy into kind of the program, our practice, our off-season practice. Our, and you know, some aren't. But, um, and then recognizing your losses. If, if this isn't a fit, I'll say, you know, maybe Cal would like, you know, whatever. So, but um, I think that surrounding yourself with motivated assistants. I walk in, uh, one of my, you know, I just walk in and I'll say, you know, how's it going today? Great. I mean, surround yourself with upbeat, positive, uh, interesting, enthusiastic, knowledgeable people. And then recruit those kind of people. And if somewhere along the way, you know, that's why I think it's so key to get them to begin with. But if you make a mistake, hey, kiss and part friends. Goodbye. This isn't working. You know, I need, I need somebody else. Um, but I, I really, I mean, I just think that getting you know, people in, when I, the way I look at it is, how can you not be motivated if you're playing at Stanford? Look at this place. You know, I mean, it's beautiful and great opportunities. Yes? 
you mentioned that confidence is very important for girls. Um, I think it's important for everyone. everyone. Yes. Especially uh, women. Um, yes. Some they don't have um, the, the enough confidence level. So my question is, how to bring the confidence level high? Mm -hmm. Or maybe speaking for yourself, are you always this confident? <laughs> over the years, you have to work hard on uh, I think that's a great question. The question is, how do you develop confidence? Um, and maybe how do, how do you keep it? Because that's part of it. Um, tell me what you are really good at. Any one thing that you're really good at. You know it. What is it? I mean, do you sing? Good at math, all right. So how do you know you're good at math? Because you have had success at math, right? Uh, I know I'm not good at math, all right? Like, I can't balance my checkbook, math, no. But to build confidence in something, nothing succeeds like success. So it's, think about this. If you, have you ever gone to, um, you know, you watch the whale jump over, you know, what's, what's that, Shamu or something? I guess he had a problem, but you know, jumping over that um, rope, how do they get him to do that, do you know? They put the rope on the bottom of the pool, and they put a piece of fish over here so the whale swims over, gets a fish, then they move the rope up, all the way up, and it's starting with easy things and then building up, building up. So now, if that whale wants that fish, they probably, you know, don't feed them all morning, you know, then the fish is over here. You've got to go up over there. And, but the confidence to do something starts with success at a low level. And with our players, like a freshman as an example, I try not to put them in the biggest game and then they lose their confidence because keeping their confidence is real important. And what I say as a coach is, you know, Honestly, I'm not really concerned with your confidence in yourself. I'm concerned with my confidence in you. So if so you are trying to you trying to sell yourself to me every day in practice. And I mean it's just like anybody, if you see someone do it, you know, if if, if as an example, you know, like John makes his free throws in practice every day and I miss them every day, if you're $10,000 bonus depends on John making that free throw. Who do you want at the free throw line, me or John? You've watched him make it every day. You know what I mean? So it's like then you have confidence in him and not in me. But um, as far as, again, my, I don't know, my confidence in myself is um, it's challenging myself and kind of winning these little battles, like you know, just coming to Stanford. I said to myself when I come to Stanford, I will know if I'm good if I can win at Stanford because this is the hardest place to win because of admissions, you know, and the, the schedule we play and being on the West Coast. So once we started winning, I, you know, I don't like sit in front of the mirror and go, well, damn, I'm good, you know. But I do, I do say, well, you know what, um, I know I can coach because, it, because of the situation, building up to it. And I, I do have confidence in myself. And at the same time, when I go to the gym and there are 7,000 people there, come to you next, okay? Um, everyone there knows more than me because they'll tell me so. <laughs> yes? So I've actually got two questions. One of them relates exactly to building up confidence in somebody. Um, and I actually have a really good example from the basketball team. 
Okay. Early in the season, I don't remember who we were playing, but uh, Appel was out, and you put in Jocelyn Tingle. Okay. And she was doing great, and she got a great pass, and she headed over to the basket, and then it was very clear she had no idea what to do with the ball. <laughs> and and I just I felt really bad for her because here she was, and everybody was staring at her. And she didn't know where to pass it, and she didn't know whether to shoot, and she was kind of open, and it was, uh. Yeah. But as the season progressed, she obviously developed into this much more confident player. How do you take what might have been a little bit of a setback mm -hmm. and get over that? Um, well, the, 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 the question is about one of our freshmen, how she developed confidence in her, her game and how, or how she kept it. Um, what's funny is... Um, um, you obviously have watched our team play. Jane Appel was a senior All-American, and she might have been out. And then Jocelyn was a freshman who, you know, sometimes we were, she didn't know the plays. We didn't know if she knew which basket we were shooting at sometimes because it was a little overwhelming. It was stressful. You know, and I, I think about this, like, um, you know, if, if this table were a lot longer between John and I, how many people could walk on this table from this chair to that chair? Everybody, right? Could anyone not walk on this table? I'm assuming that it's sturdy. We could all do it, right? But if we put this up 10 stories, you know, across two buildings, then it would change. And that's what we, what we do every day when we challenge people and like in a game, in a big game, we put it up there and now we expect, and I use the analogy with our team, I am your net. I am here for you. You know, now I'm, I'm asking you to walk across that and to perform, you know, in front of these people, but we're here for you. So even if she messed up, and what's funny about this one person that you picked out, for us to go to the Final Four, Jocelyn Tinkle made the winning basket. We're, we don't go to the Final Four without her making this running basket, which thankfully she knew which basket she was shooting at. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but it's, um, it's understanding, I think, having a background in, in developing people and not putting people in situations where they can't be successful. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how the students on the team can be leaders and what type of qualities they need? Because I think most of us, or at least the students of us, aren't coaches yet. Right. So how do we be leaders amongst us? That that that's a great question. How how do how do how how are the students on the team leaders? Um, I guess my answers are stories, and I will tell you one of my favorite, absolute favorite stories with a young lady named Jamila Weidman. Now, has anyone read the book Brothers and Keepers? Her dad, John Weidman, uh, is a, an accomplished author. And uh, Jamila was just an incredible young lady on our team. And she amazed me every day. So I have learned a lot of leadership from different players on our team. And I, I learned a lot from Jamila all through her four years at Stanford. Um, but uh, the one... The one time I learned the most was we played a team. Our team was very close, and we played a game uh, against a team, Old Dominion. And it was in the semifinal game of the NCAA in 1997, and Jamila was a senior along with other seniors who were great players. And in this particular game, we went into overtime, and Jamila had the last shot that she was fouled on, but it wasn't called. And you know, I'm biased because this is my player. And, I mean, the pain of losing this game, I have never seen 
by any other team. We are in the locker room, and players on the team, they're very, we're just laying on the floor sobbing. And in 10 minutes, when you play in an NCAA game, in 10 minutes, they open the doors for the press to come in. So you know, here comes the USA Today reporters, AP reporters, and you're supposed to then you know, answer these questions and be all, oh, OK. Our team was devastated. And so I kind of got up. They're crying. So I got up and I just, you know, I, I just said, OK, you know, you guys, you know, I don't even remember what I said. No one heard me. No one listened. You know, they're still crying. Jamila got up and said, pick your heads up. There was silence in that room. And I was like, every kid's like just, she had command of that group. And she just, she told them how much she loved playing with them. And it was incredible. And to me, that was leadership. You know, that she had, she just, and she was, a fre as a freshman, she was captain of our team. I mean, she just had this presence where you had eye contact with her. And that was, that's, that's, she, I just remember that, and I was like, whoa. So I think that as, you know, you have strengths, and, and as young people, I think that some of it is when you're in situations really trusting yourself, you know, and not, not being put in situations that, you know, as a young person coming maybe into a corporation or whatever. I mean, someone made some really bad mistakes down in, uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico with this oil thing. Someone, all along the line, there were mistakes. And someone needed to stand up and say, hey, no, we need a safety valve here. We need this. You know, someone had, had to put this up on that. And that's where I think, you know, young people, uh, you're coming from Stanford, you have the opportunities to, to make some really uh, valuable contributions. Yes, can I come back to you? Because he hasn't answered the question. Yes, sir. Early on in your career here, before you started to write the ship, what were some of the biggest obstacles on the recruiting trail? Because obviously, I'm sure you went up to somebody's house, and the story that you yep. heard was, well, we can't win at Stanford. Right, you, right. How do you attack that? Um, uh, the question was, um, how did we early on recruit top players to a, a poor program? Um, you know, I think, well, there were some players. As an example, there was one player that came. She was a great player. She was a high school All-American. She would have been a phenomenal player to come to Stanford. She came here, and I'm taking her around campus. She's going like this. I'm like, what are you looking for? She goes, the nerds. I'm like, oh, boy, this is a problem. She, but she was just like, you can't get enough of players like me to win. And I said, do you think God broke the mold on you? You know, I was like, we did run into that. But we were able to get enough good players. Jennifer Azey, who liked, so I had to sell the challenge. I said, you know, you have an opportunity to, make, to be a difference maker. You have, the, you have the challenge to come out here and put Stanford on the map, which she did, along with Sonia Henning, along with other, you know. And then it, and then it grew. And, you know, and I took Jennifer into the uh, Maples Pavilion, I said, you know, and we did not even pull, pull out the bleachers across the way. You know, she was, I didn't really, I wasn't like totally forthcoming with her. When I told her what we wanted to be, I didn't tell her how bad we were. And she kind of teases me about that. 
But, but we didn't even pull out the bleachers across the way. And I told her, I said, Jennifer, picture someone in each corner. We are going to fill this arena. And she remembers that. And I mean, and that, I guess, you know, and then she talked to other players. So getting someone that then brings other really great players to your program. I think that was it. And, and the fact that then when they got here, it was fun. The challenge was fun. You know, we're going to win the Pac-10. We're going to win a national championship. Um, and we, you know, I thought this was pretty good. I thought this was pretty good. We, in Jennifer's, the first year, my first recruiting class had two Olympians in it, Jennifer Azey, Katie Stedding, and they won a national championship. In their freshman year, they were 500. Men's volleyball was 3 and 25 these guys' freshman year. It's incredible, you know, how they turned it around. But a lot of it is a, a belief, you know, having a goal and not letting go of that, no matter what other people said. And honestly, we outworked people. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, definitely. Were, were, were these particular players, you know, high accolades in high school? They were, but it was really different. Like, you didn't have the internet then. You didn't have all this scouting services then. Um, you know, we had, uh, it's really different now. I mean, we pay over $1,000 for a scouting service where, you know, people go out and watch all these kids play and they rank them. And, you know, they, we, we know the best sixth grader. You know, it's like you got a right to that sixth grader and you got seventh and eighth graders already committing. It's crazy, but, you know. So that, that was different. Yes, sir. When you or the other Stanford coaches have your performance praised by your supervisor, presumably the athletic director, mm -hmm. what criteria do you think should be used? Uh, when I have my, my coaching performance evaluated by our supervisor, what, what um, things should be evaluated? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I am evaluated, um, and I think that I think a, a big part of that is probably looking at the success of the team. Uh, and so, what is success? Um, part of it is winning games. Uh, I think it's graduation, um, players graduating. I think it's players having a, a very positive experience at Stanford. Um, it's having a diverse team, uh, not just you know, just being one one or the other. Um, it's, uh, I would say, the support of the team from the community, um, people coming out and watching, um, you know, looking at tickets. Um, uh, players on the team giving back to the community, being active in the community. And probably a lot of it for women's basketball is, um, more so in women's basketball is that players are happy. You know, that they really enjoy their experience. In, in men's sports, it's, it's mostly money-driven, I think. You know, you'd have, if you have guys that are unhappy and the team is winning, they either go somewhere else or, you know, that's about it. But if the team is losing and they complain, then, um, then the coach might be gone. I think um, the other thing is, at Stanford might be really important is that you don't get in trouble with the NCAA, uh, rules violations. Um, you know, and there might be a breakdown of um, are you a strong administrator? They have, you know, budgeting, things like that, staying within your budget. But most, mostly I think it's um, 
that the players have a very positive experience. And I think that's, that's important too. Why don't we take one more question and then we can break and people can grab a bite to eat and give Tara a break. All right. Does anyone have a pressing question? I did, I did have my hand up. So I was just curious your thoughts on the uh, suggestion or proposal by Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of, Educa of Education in the Obama administration, to mm -hmm. not let schools or teams who don't graduate some percentage of their athletes within five years not compete in the NCAA finals. Mm -hmm. That, I'm sure, wouldn't be a problem for Stanford, but do you think, just from a theoretical perspective, it's mm -hmm. the right thing to do? Uh, that question, I don't know that I can do justice to answer. The question is um, about um, a proposal to limit NCAA participation based on graduation. Um, I, think you, I think it would have to go further than that. I mean, why don't these players graduate? A lot of them, they want to graduate. A lot of them just get passed along as young athletes. And I think that we, I think in some ways you can't uh, maybe you know just point out whether it's a, a college or a coach or an athletic department it's the the problem is much more systemic and it goes back to the school systems and the programs all along the way um, I don't know that that would actually fix it um, but I, I do think it is an issue that um, players are used basically for their athletic talent and then when their eligibility or their you know, a lot of them decide they're just not going to, you know, continue to play. Um, then they, but they have at least had the opportunity to go to school. And and some of it is at at a university giving the uh, the kind of support, life skills. A lot of the young um, players coming up need life skills. And again, it might not be quite applicable to Stanford, um, but uh, life skill programs, um, uh, tutoring, things like that. Um, and not just putting, you know, putting money into things that won't help them graduate. Um, I, 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 you know, it is, it, is a little bit, it is a little bit different. But I don't know that that is the answer, but I think it's good to be in the discussion. Well, Tara, thank you right. so much. This has been really inspiring. Thank you, and thank I've, you I've learned a ton. My, my lab is going to be different. All right, how Tomorrow? many people are going to come watch next year? Come uh, to a game. And free tickets. Thanks for raising that hand. A little slow. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll get some tickets to John. We could have a graduate student game, and uh, we'd, we'd love to have you come. So great. thank you all and, very much. And please take uh, one of our brochures over there, which lists some of the other programs and activities, just so you're aware of them. And thank you again, Tara. All right, my wonderful. pleasure. Thanks. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.